So good evening, everybody. Oh, it's a great pleasure to see you here. So I'm, I'm Julia Black. I'm a professor here. I'm currently interim director. I'm also a pro-director for research, and by background, a professor in the law department here. Um, and it's with great pleasure that I, I introduce uh, Ruth Hunt to you this evening. Uh, so Ruth, as you know, is the CEO of Stonewall, uh, which has been for the last... Uh, well, she's been there for many years. Actually, been CEO for the last uh, three years or so. Um, and... Oh, am I not mic'd? Is that better? Right now, right now, you can hear me. Thank you, because that could have gone on for some time. <laughs> so, so I will reintroduce Ruth, then, as CEO of Stonewall, um, where she has been for a number of years and, and CEO for the last, uh, uh, last several years. Um, and Ruth is here to talk to you about uh, Stonewall's work. If you are tweeting, then it's hashtag LSE LGBT. LGBT. Um, and the event is being recorded. So um, Ruth is very happy to take Q&A at the end. Um, just if you would like to say who you are and where you're from, then please do. But be aware it is being recorded. So if you prefer not to, then that is also fine. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll, uh, I'll stand up for the duration of the lecture. Um, first of all, I don't have PowerPoint. I'm sorry, but I'm sure you'll all cope. I'm going to talk for about 40 minutes and give an insight into where I think the movement, the LGBT plus movement has come from over the last, say, 10 decades. We'll, we'll, we'll limit it to that. Where I think we're at now and where I think we're going in the future. The analysis will be given through a, through a stonewall prism because that's my context and understanding. But I will be talking very frankly about where I think... Uh, the modern movement has gone wrong at times and where I think we can go in the future to address some of those imbalances. I'll be naturally taking and looking at it through uh, the perspective of being a woman um, because I am one and that will inevitably shape what I have to say. As someone who has been part of, the, of Stonewall for over a decade but a, um, a kind of modern LGBT activist since 1996 my analysis will inevitably be favourable towards me because that's whenever you report history, and including your own, you're always kinder to yourself. But I will try and be as honest and self-reflective as I can be on that as well. Some of the things I say I'm sure you'll have heard before. Some of them are utterly subjective. Anyone who works with me will tell you that I can speak with great authority and sound like I'm telling you something that is factual. I will try and outline when I'm being utterly subjective, even if my tone doesn't quite reflect that. Is that a deal? Okay. Now, because I don't write speeches either, I can't give you a full content note, but if I think I'm going to talk about something that might potentially be distressing, I'll try and flag that in advance to give you some time and space to decide whether you want to listen to me. So, Stonewall, set up 28 years ago in response to Section 28. And Section 28 was a piece of legislation that prevented the promotion of homosexuality in schools. It came at a particularly dark time for LGBT people. And I'll use the acronym LGBT. But actually, 28 years ago, society was really talking about LNG. There was a different movement happening around trans that I'll touch on in a moment, bisexuality was barely talked about, certainly not talked about in political lobbying circles. So in the introduction of Section 28, it was a particularly distressing moment for what was known as the gay rights movement, the campaign for homosexual equality. But what had come before it, 
was equally distressing. And I think it's important to remember where we've come from as a movement, because it is something that is still very present now. Next year is the anniversary of the Wolfenden Report that basically enabled the age of consent to be... No, that wasn't age of consent. Wolfenden Report meant that gay men could exist and were no longer completely illegal based on their identity. In the 80s, HIV came and basically a whole generation of young men were told that they were responsible because they were having sex with other men. So we had a generation of men older men who were told that who they were was completely unlawful and illegal, actively pursued by police and persecuted by police on trumped-up charges for same-sex activity. We then had a generation of young men who were told that they were responsible for people dying, and we had groups of women who barely got a look-in in any of that narrative. And if you look at some of the work around HIV, what we saw was that it were lots of lesbians who was providing a lot of the support around HIV at that time. And lots of lesbians and bisexual women were part of a lot of the feminist movements. But women were very much involved in the campaign for homosexual equality. But what they tell us, and what some of the history books tell us, is they were often consigned to making the tea during some of those more prominent marches and campaigns. So I think it's important to recognise that the modern gay rights movement use that word deliberately of the last 50 years, wasn't exactly great on the whole intersectionality of women in those days, let alone recognising the different identities and diversities that might exist within the LGBT community. So by the late 1980s, when the government was introducing Section 28, this was quite another blow on top of a cultural and collective identity that was already feeling quite fragmented and quite tired. We were also seeing lesbians who had come out possibly after being married to a man who identified as lesbian, having their children removed by the courts, being told they were unfit mothers and told they were unable to be, have their families. Again, this was underplayed in the general media whilst issues such as the gay plague was overplayed. In terms of trans identity, what was happening around the same time is that people were able to transition if they had the funding and the income and the resources available to manage that, but it was a relatively discreet experience. What changed that is when a woman attempted to divorce her husband and the judge ruled that as she was not a woman, her marriage was invalid and therefore her divorce was invalid as well. Thus, many trans people who felt that they were safe in terms of their gender identity and gender presentation were suddenly told that that identity was not valid. So in the late 1980s, two major conversations took place. First of all, a civil servant and conservative minister approached Ian McKellen, Gandalf, Magento, him, yeah. uh, Michael Cashman, Lisa Power, a group of people and said, we need a highly strategic lobbying group. We need a group that is pragmatic, that works in a very strategic way, in a cross-party way, behind the scenes to nudge organisations, institutions, individuals to change their attitudes towards lesbian and gay people. A similar conversation was happening between the Liberal Democrats and a group of trans activists about setting up something called Press for Change. Stonewall was called Stonewall because it was the 25th anniversary of the Stonewall riots. I doubt Sir Ian and his friends thought about the um, significance of naming a pragmatic, discreet, behind-the-scenes organisation based on non-democratic lobbying after a riot. Had they, 
My life would have been made much easier in explaining our name, but I was at primary school, so I cannot take responsibility. Press for Change was the trans organisation. So Stonewall was set up with a small staff and worked very, very hard to change the law. And there were lots of other players involved in a way that social change is never achieved by one thing. Stonewall was not a charity. It had something called the Iris Trust connected to it. Iris Trust was set up by Pat Butcher from EastEnders, Pam St. Clements, and it was called the Iris Trust so that people could donate but not have the word gay on their bank statement. So this is all kind of part and parcel of, of Stonewall's history and where we came from. Now, in 1997, something quite interesting happened that had been for prepared by uh, John Major. So John Major met with Ian McKellen and agreed to do the 10 legal changes necessary to achieve gay equality. And Press for Change had met with John Major and got an agreement for the Gender Recognition Act. Unfortunately, John Major didn't last until the end of the year, but this bright young thing called Tony Blair came in um, with a big majority and he promised to bring in all the legal changes. And I think it is at that moment in 1997 when you started seeing more gay politicians, more people coming out, you started seeing very limited uh, representation and reflections of gay, and I keep using the word gay deliberately, by the way, that's not shorthand, gay representation on television, limited lesbian representation. So you saw um, there was Zoe on Emmerdale. In 1993, Beth Jordash in Brookside, you're all much too young, I think, kissed a girl, um, which was probably the single most transformative moment in my life, but then killed her father and buried him under a patio. <laughs> so hashtag role models was not forthcoming. So if I look at where I was at in 1997, I was in, I was in sixth form, having been at school with Section 28. I came out in 1993 when I was 13 and completely... Um, frightened my parents and I'll, t I'll talk a bit about this now because I think it's important to contextualise where I come from but don't tweet about my mum if that's okay so my parents freaked because they were desperately desperately scared that bad things would happen to me because their experience of sexual orientation was not being able to get life insurance if you're a gay man that gay people again, deliberate use of the word gay, were responsible for HIV, that you'd never get a job, that you wouldn't work, that people would basically discriminate against me. And they were so frightened for me. They also thought it was a phase. And that's quite common, that this will pass, because who at 13, at 12 or 13, knows what they want? Well, I very much knew what I wanted, and her name was Gemma, and she was quite something. And it was very transformative. But I went to Cardiff Library and read the whole LGBT section, um, which then was the gay section, and had Radcliffe Hall, The Well of Loneliness, and Orange Is Not the Only Fruit. Now, if you are um, in any way connected to a young lesbian coming out at 12 or 13, do not give her The Well of Loneliness and Orange Is Not the Only Fruit as their opening seminal texts, because it isn't seminal in any way, shape, or form. Um, but did, did give me an insight into very, very heavy prose and how to conduct my relationships as if I was Jeanette Winterson, which probably acted as a bit of a barrier during my adolescence. So at 16, moved to Birmingham, and when you move to Birmingham at 16 and as a lesbian from Cardiff, 
I thought all my Christmases had come at once. And without any reference to LGBT issues in school, except those that were raised by me, I stood for mock election in sixth form and remember the other candidates saying very clearly that gay rights were wrong, HIV is the disease and AIDS is the cure. And I remember being voted head girl by my, by my peers but told that I should be deputy because, because as deputy I would have less of a negative influence on the younger generations. Now, as stories of suffering and, and disadvantage go, I appreciate it's not the most harrowing, but it was certainly very, very shaping. And what it said to me is that my parents were right, that actually being different and being other was going to have an impact and me finding my way and navigating my way in that space was going to be, was going to be difficult. Uh, we got the pink paper in those days and Angela Mason was chief exec of Stonewall, who I thought was the single most amazing thing in the world. Amazing woman in the world, and I still think that. I think that for a woman at that time leading an organisation like Stonewall and doing the best she could in a very negative context was incredibly important to me in a time when there was very little other representation going on. Um, so I went to, went to Birmingham and then applied to Oxford and was told by my parents that I mustn't under any circumstances let them know that I was a lesbian because they wouldn't let me in. Um, I, I think they could tell. And I very quickly realised that if you're going to be gay, Oxford is probably the place to be. Uh, I went to St Hilda's College, which for those of you who don't know is an all-girls college. Um, that, that, was, that was fine. Um, I was told that I wouldn't, I wouldn't get on, and certainly St. Hilda's was very uncomfortable with me as a very open butch dyke, basically. It didn't quite sit with their all-girls Cheltenham Ladies College image that they wished to portray while I was swaggering about the place, collecting my, collecting my colleges. Um, became president of the Junior Common Room and then became president of the Student Union as an openly gay woman in Oxford. So I very quickly learnt that my parents were probably wrong in their fear and it took me a long time to forgive and understand where that fear came from. And I think that it is often difficult to navigate when, you're, when your parents are frightened about something. So I fell in love and stayed in Oxford for a while. Then I found myself and eventually joined Stonewall in 2005. So at Stonewall I joined an organisation that was 25 staff and at that stage had a turnover of 1.7 million, which is not very much for a charity. Then, and as now, we relied on no government funding. In those days, it's because government didn't offer. Um, it became a principle. I think we probably could get government money now, and we get a bit here and there, but it retains as part of our principle. And at 25, with a number three haircut, baggy jeans, and 20 Marlboro lights, I was certainly a bit of a a new thing, I guess, in Stonewall. And I was coming from a background where young people talked about queer a lot, where we were very much into diverse identities and not necessarily fitting in, but falling out and being cool and all that kind of stuff. And actually what Stonewall was pursuing at that time was a, was a, was a very strict assimilationist agenda. And I think that history will judge whether that was the right thing to do or not, but I, I will explain what, what I think, where I think it came from. I think something came into the common discourse around 2004. So 2004, remember, was the Civil Partnership Act. We had the Gender Recognition Act. European law meant for the first time you couldn't be fired for being LGB, though you could still... T came in later. Age of consent was coming through. The right to adopt 
the right to not discriminate in the provisions of goods, facilities and services, the right to serve in the armed forces, catalogue of legal changes. None of them were easy, none of them were whipped, which meant no party was obliged to vote for them. Everyone had to be fought, everyone had wrecking amendments, everything was a trial. And the face of Stonewall was, it's very normal to be gay. We're just like you. Normal, normal, normal. We want to get married, we want to have children, we want to adopt, we want to pay our taxes. It was a studied and studious assimilationist agenda that arguably was very, very effective because we now have the single best rights for lesbian, gay and bisexual people in the world in Great Britain. I put blouses on, I wore brooches, like we kind of played the part and Stonewall talks a lot about matching the client. We started in 2004 working with employers, bringing in institutions and we continue to be non-democratic, quiet, pragmatic, strategic, behind closed doors, gentle persuasion, nudge theory which means that we were as comfortable talking to chief executives in banks as we were talking to conservative politicians, GPs, Department of Health, civil servants, Foreign Commonwealth Office, chairs of LSE, whoever it was, we could navigate that space. And that is something that Stonewall retains to this day and something that we pride ourselves on, something that's very important to us. We don't just talk to people like us. We don't just talk to people who are part of our community. We are constantly talking to people who are a bit unsafe and uncertain. So last week, Manchester United agreed to be one of our main partners on football. They've contributed to our campaign. They've stood next to us and developed a five-year plan to ensure that everybody at that game will be able to be themselves. If I had gone in and talked about the changing nature of gender identity through the prism of Foucault, I would have lost Man United. There is something about how we bring these institutions with us that is very important. But I think in 2004, when that became part of Stonewall's culture, I think I would describe it as going native. I think we so adopted that way that we forgot that it was sometimes a strategy and a technique. And that meant we underplayed and dismissed some of the beautiful, rich tapestry and diversity and complexity of our communities. It meant that bisexuality barely got a reference from 2004 to 2010. It meant that we didn't talk about the fact that some kids have five parents and two dads and two mums and an ex-husband. We talked about the fact that people had two mums or two dads who'd adopted because it's better than having a single parent. Everything was Daily Mail safe. And I think we have to reflect on what are the consequences of that. What did that mean for our modern gay rights movement? And I think that what we have had to recognise is that it meant that people got left behind and it meant that we relied on a structure that people would be pulled up behind us. If we get marriage, it'll be okay because those we've left behind will come up behind us. And actually, the emerging thinking around inclusion and around strategies to involve and include is changing. And leaving people behind in the hopes that they'll catch up has not proven to work very well. So we may be okay now as gay men 
if we are affluent, employed, with a good pension, a nice husband, or a very good negotiated exit from our civil partnership that's been nicely agreed in a prenup, with a good job and good rates of pay. We are not okay if we are basically trying to find our way in our complex family with an ex-wife and three kids and trying to work out when we can come out to our nan. That's a very different story. But because we put so much effort into making sure that this guy would be okay, I think we've forgotten to express the complexity of the lived experience of LGBT people. Is that a bad thing? I think we could have done a third way. I think that as a modern movement, we could have been more inclusive, yet still been pragmatic and brought people with us. And I think people will disagree with me on this. And if you summarise it on Twitter, bear in mind I'll get a kick in later, so be a bit discerning about it. So what does that mean for Stonewall? Well, Stonewall faced a lot of controversy. Stonewall was thought to be elitist and excluding and white and male and affluent, and it was considered to be excluding at times, but bloody good at what it does and very, very effective. So when I was asked to take over as chief exec in 2014, it was an important moment because marriage had just come in and lots of people were saying to Stonewall, job done, I'm okay now, I've got my rights, I no longer need to give Stonewall £20 a month because I'm okay now. And what are you here for anyway? Why are you still existing? And I had to go to great personal lengths to consider what is Stonewall's relevance moving forward and how do we make sure that we're effective in that. And that meant having a good and honest and clear conversation with trans communities who had hitherto been excluded from Stonewall to work out whether trans people should be included under the Stonewall umbrella and after consultation with 700 trans people and a significant number of lesbian gay and bisexual people, as well as heterosexual people, the conclusion was yes, but yes, bring trans in. And the reason why trans issues were brought in is because butch lesbians get beaten up for looking like boys, and trans women get beaten up for being in the wrong toilets, and the gay boy who's camp gets a harder time than the gay boy who's straight acting, and the good gays and the bad gays muddle along, and people who are bisexual are called greedy, and people who are trans are called, are called, are called. And we are all part of the same family. We are allies with each other. And I strongly believe that a hatred against one is a hatred against all, and we have a responsibility to stand by each other's side in this. How do we make sure that a modern LGBT movement continues to bring everyone with them? And often what I'm struck by, particularly when I talk at universities, is there's a kind of, well, GNL is okay now, what about B&T? And what I have to say is that, well, L never really had its day, if I'm honest. It's not like L had a great time between 2008 and 12, where it was really cool to be a lesbian. I mean, most of the women I encounter in schools won't use the word lesbian. It's considered too harsh and too uncomfortable. Gay woman is all right, but not lesbian. Being a butch lesbian is considered to be something that is just a bit too much and a bit too far. Now, as a young woman who's grown up being patronised by many, many people who would assume to be my mentor and told that what I need in life is accessories, every time I've been told to buy an accessory, I've bought a tie. And that's not because I have any complex gender identity issue, but I love Peaky Blinders, and it's a good look. That requires a degree of courage that many, many women don't have 
who identify in this way. So I wouldn't say that lesbians have had their day and now what about B&T? I'd say, actually, there are plenty of gay men who've been left behind. There are plenty of lesbians who've never had their day and are still finding their place in popular culture, in society, in leadership roles, in parliament. Bisexuality has never had the profile it deserves and trans people continue to be vilified on the front page of the Daily Mail week in and week out. And often I get asked, Ruth, you know, why are you banging on about trans issues? It's like, because the Daily Mail keeps vilifying trans people week in and week out. And if we let the hatred of trans people go, the next people they will attack is me when I'm trying to go into a toilet. And my partner, who is more slender than me and certainly looks like a boy from the back, is routinely asked to leave women's toilets for being in the wrong toilet. Because... Fear breeds fear, breeds fear, breeds fear, breeds fear. And Stonewall has to understand that. The biggest challenge facing us now is not what are we left to do. Stonewall now has 120 staff and a turnover of 7 million. That money comes from working with 750 organisations. We work with 2,000 schools. We operate in every single part of this country, working with institutions from NHS trusts to police forces to the private sector, we work with Barclays to help them influence organisations in Uganda. We help work with Citigroup to see if they can change the law in Northern Ireland. We are using our influence and our reach all the time, and we'll continue to use our influence and reach all the time. But the biggest challenge facing us is how can we get our supporters to not just say, job done, but how can I support my brother or my sister or my sibling who is experiencing persecution maybe in Africa, but maybe next door. How can I get a group of white people who've traditionally supported Stonewall to care about the lesbian Muslim community in Yorkshire who are being left behind? And the product of a decade of what about meism is the result that we have a very selfish movement at times who are only concerned with what about me and what about my rights. How do we now work much more together and in partnership as a collective movement for the better outcomes of all LGBT communities? How do we help gay men be the best, best advocates at challenging sexism and supporting lesbians? How do we get gay people to advocate and be supportive of bisexuality? How do we ensure that trans people feel welcome, included and endorsed as part of the LGBT community when some of that hostility comes from the LGBT community? How do we stop young 18-year-old black boys going onto Grindr, the first thing they're seeing, saying no blacks? How do we push back on the discrimination that exists in our own communities and how do we stand in solidarity with each other as we push these things forward? My final note would be that we only have to look to America to see how, how tenuously some of these rights and responsibilities are held. It has been very quick to unravel in the US, not just in terms of hostility towards the other, but in terms of simple rights and responsibilities. We thought that when marriage was introduced, we would have no need for a parliamentary function. We have more need for a parliamentary function than ever before. The difference is now it's whack-a-mole. We are stopping things coming up all the time. You'd have seen a nice media release about sex and relationship education a few weeks ago. That was all lovely. That was all LGBT inclusive. The number of hours it took and negotiation and persuasion it took to ensure that was LGBT inclusive is more resource than we ever anticipated would be needed. So our parliamentary work is not done. Our preventative work is harder than ever before. 
and our ability to influence society is more important than ever before. So Stonewall is not just working with institutions to help them be nice to gay people. We're also working with institutions to make them realise their moral responsibility for making the world a better place. Lloyds Banking Group is our top employer. They're the biggest taxpayer in this country. How are they, as the biggest taxpayer, influencing government to ensure that LGBT issues are included across curricula? MI5, biggest employer, best employer the year before, they keep the country safe. How are they making the country safer? How are they achieving good relations between communities? So helping everyone we work with think differently and look beyond their peripheral vision to help make the world a better place is absolutely integral to Stonewall's future and Stonewall's effectiveness. And only, I think, when we've reached a stage where everyone is accepted without exception, that's Stonewall's tagline, only at a stage when we are able to say, my brother, my sister, my sibling, who is experiencing prejudice, is someone I will stand by the side of, will we truly have achieved equality. And it is far too likely held now to be in any way complacent about it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ruth, and I think that was a, an inspiring talk and, and also showing us the, the value of unrelenting reasonableness, um, but also the, some of the compromises that have to be made, but some of the choices, uh, strategic choices and, and very important social choices that have to be made uh, in, in a movement such as Stonewall with the success uh, that it has had. So I'm going to take questions now. I'm going to take them in groups of, of three uh, to allow enough people to have time to, to ask a question. Um, and if I can ask you to, to ask a question uh, and to keep it quite brief rather than to use this as an opportunity to, to make a statement, that will be very helpful. Okay, so you just need to raise your hands. People are coming around with mics if you can. Uh, so we've got a um, person there in a checked, uh, person there in stripes, and then a person there at the end in a, in a jacket. So I will just, it's always good to wear something bright and distinctive to these events. So if, I could just, if you could just ask your questions in that order, that would be very helpful. Thank you. Um, hi, thanks for that. Um, my question is um, about change um, and kind of coming from the belief that change is never given, it's, it's one. Um, and I'd be interested in, you've kind of touched upon it, but more about how Stonewall can support um, grassroots movements of LGBT people fighting back. Um, because I suppose Stonewall is seen as this, is a corporate very effective for what it does, um, but how can it support grassroots activists that are fighting um, that don't have the resources and the access that you do. Um, yeah, that's my question. Okay. Um, you. you talked a lot about bringing up people that might have been um, left behind. Um, what about asexuality, which is not currently recognised by Stonewall um, as, as an institution? Um, I could talk for hours about what um, asexual people face, but do you believe that we should be under the support um, and institutionalised by Stonewall, um, sort of so it's like an institutionalised support, uh, so that people believe we, dis we exist and don't attack us for who we are. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, Ruth. You, you didn't mention religion. Does your organisation have any contact with all these anti-gay churches? Right. Cool. Okay. It's good, and good and diverse questions. Um, okay, so on the issue of grassroots activism, I think that there is always a 
disconnect in any movement between a kind of national organisation that's working strategically and activists on the ground who are working individually. And if you can find me a social movement who gets that connection right, I'd love to hear about it because it's something I'm very interested in. What Stonewall tries to do is empower rather than, than give our stuff away and make people do what we want to do. So Stonewall's methods are all about empowering individuals to achieve change wherever they live, work, socialise, play and pray. If that's a campaign about bisexual whales, even though we'd quite like you to do rainbow laces, we're cool about that. So it's about making sure that individuals have the power to transform and change. The issue of resources for grassroots movements is one that is um, difficult because Stonewall's resources are absolutely allocated on a highly strategic basis and we are not a grant-making body. However, we do support grassroots movements to secure funding. So, for example, UK Black Pride, which I think is one of the single most effective grassroots movements in this country, um, we've been the headline sponsor since its inception, and we work very hard with them to develop a strategic plan and secure more funding. The LGBTI mission work, which will come to your point in a minute, sir, is the LGBT Christian group that Stonewall has put significant resource and time into to help work. The important thing when we do that is to not have our fingerprints on it. The, mo the worst thing that Stonewall can do when supporting a grassroots group is to stuck our logo on it. The most important thing to do is back off and help where you can and disappear. What I've tried to do at Stonewall is strip the ego out of Stonewall and make it less about the Stonewall show and more about us enabling and facilitating. But there will always be grassroots movements who want more support from Stonewall than we can offer but our structure is designed. The only other thing I'd say on that is that our training ways of working with schools is called Train the Trainer. It's called School Champions Programs. And we train two teachers in a school, and they train every teacher in their school. It cascades down. What we've done is trained grassroots LGBT groups to deliver that training. They take the money, they charge the school, they build the relationship with their local school, they build the relationship with the people, we provide quality control, that message out gets out more effectively and quickly. There are 27,000 schools. Stonewall doesn't want to and can't work with all of them. Plus, we're generating local income. That's something we want to extend in other areas of work. So how we can take our money-making bits of Stonewall and share it out. And that's how we work internationally as well. So we take our profit-making bits and franchise them out, in effect, to the LGBT group in Poland. And they deliver it and generate an income for themselves. And that's because we've had to develop sustainable income funds that we're able to carry on surviving with. So we're quite happy to share it. If you have ideas and things happening, always drop us an email because we always want to know about it and we will be involved if we can. Um, in terms of asexuality, we hear different messages from the asexual communities about what they want on this and what people want. So Stonewall's tagline, Acceptance Without Exception, is an indication that we have the capacity and willingness to expand our rainbow as far as we want to, but we will only ever do it with the blessing of communities that we're serving. Um, so, for example, on trans, that was a very long discussion to ensure that we were, we were doing that in line with, best, with, with what the community wanted. Same with bisexual communities, that was a long discussion. Intersex communities, for example, are very clear that they do not want Stonewall to be campaigning on behalf of intersex issues. So for every one email we get about asexuality saying, why aren't you doing more on asexuality, we get another going, keep your nose out. So I'd be very interested in convening some kind of group of people who identify as asexual to kind of work through 
what that intervention would look like, but there is no organisational cultural resistance to doing it. It's just about making sure we don't, we don't um, appropriate a movement that's not ours to appropriate. Um, God. So Stonewall does a huge amount of work with God and on God's behalf. When I, um, when I was more junior at Stonewall, um, I was on the media phone one, one weekend and the, the phone rotates around staff and they were closing the Catholic Soho masses and got a phone call on the back phone that basically said, uh, what does Stonewall have to say about the Catholic LGBT masses being shut down? We said, it's a shame. I was, like, I was a bit bleary-eyed and hung over. It's a shame that they're closing down the masses. Are there any LGBT Catholics, said the journalist? Yes, I'm an LGBT Catholic, which didn't matter at all when I was Deputy Director of Public Affairs because nobody cares about a Deputy Director of Public Affairs. The headline when I was appointed Chief Exec was Practicing Catholic Appointed as Chief Exec of Stonewall, which was quite a big headline and for someone whose theology was a little bit ropey. And although... I don't use contraception, and I um, am a believer in God. I wasn't suddenly qualified to speak on behalf of LGBT Christians. I very quickly became good at speaking about being an LGBT Christian, but somewhat reluctantly. What that being out about being gay and Christian has enabled um, is access to conversations that Stonewall would not have ordinarily been able to access. So Stonewall has done extensive work with the Catholic community, the Church of England, and with increasingly evangelical Pentecostal communities as well, mainly utilising heterosexual teenagers and allies, so teenage girls from evangelical Pentecostal communities, teaching them how to be amazing campaigners for equality. You do not mess with a Pentecostal evangelical teenage girl. Um, So we are making inroads into these different communities. There are some communities who will never want to speak to us, Um, We were particularly concerned about the case recently of a parent who was transitioning, who was told not to see their parents, not to see their children, because they would be excluded from their faith community. That's that's in the public domain. So that that is a concern, um, that it was considered more risky to deprive children of their community than their parent. I think that's, that's quite a big, big concern for us, all of us, regardless of the sexual orientation or gender identity issue. But if you look at our work with Islamic communities, we've just trained LGBT Muslims to, to my point about schools, go into Muslim-led schools to teach teachers about homophobic, biphobic, and transphobic bullying. So it really is about ending the assumption that these positions are diametrically opposed, when often there's a lot of crossover in communities that should be, that should be nudged. Fascinating sentence. So I've got a whole list of questions myself, but I'm, I'm not allowed to ask them. Uh, so I've got a person in the front with a blue jacket, person uh, middle with glasses, and then person stripy shirt. Thanks. Uh, hi, Harry from the Institute for Public Policy Research. Um, two questions, if I can. One is, there's clearly across kind of politics in the UK and beyond, there's obviously a kind of rise in the influence of... Um, communities in the UK that are, I guess, probably more small see conservative, socially conservative, um, and I think probably that will increase post-Brexit. Um, I wondered, I mean, I think probably in the last kind of 10, 15 years, there has been a kind of dominance of identity politics, particularly in, like, the Labour Party is a great example where identity politics has taken over class politics entirely. So 
I think some of that, some of the, the shift is justified, but what are the risks of that, and how do we, how does that change what Stonewall is going to be doing, and how do we react to that, and that kind of the genuine concerns and the, the less genuine. And then the second question is, you're, you, you mentioned, talked a lot about the kind of victories on legal rights. Is there a move to kind of move away from the kind of legal fight, if you like, and move to kind of, let, I guess, more intangible things? So decisions that are made every day by teachers, uh, health professionals, um, policy across the board, but not necessarily legal stuff. Um, and what does that change about the way you work and others should be working? Okay. Uh, so thank you. So uh, middle row um, glasses. <laughs> Sorry, it's not, a very, it's not a very subtle way. You need, we need numbers. Hold up a number. You. <laughs> Hi. Um, my name's Fiona. Um, I work in the charity sector. Um, and my question was, you touched upon the changing landscape in the States and the, the effect that's going to have on people. And just quite a short question is, what is your biggest fear at the moment, particularly for young LGBT people in the UK? Good question, if depressing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Hi, thank you for your talk. Like, you were talking about like gay people, trans transgender people, like normal, like food, paying a tax, want children, having family, something like that. And I quite agree with that. But like when I participated in women's march two months ago, I was feeling like like women were unified and specialized and need some rescue by people and I'm feeling like it's distinct from like what you said normal because it's kind of a categorization of people and I'm I think it's a kind of like dilemma of doing active active hmm? do like doing some like approach to be recognized to get lights or something like that so how do you think about the possible way to mitigate such dilemmas it's a good question and actually links to the first question about identity politics. Um, in terms of the, the, the first point, are we seeing an increase in socially conservative views and perspectives post-Brexit? No, we're not. They've always been there. Um, they haven't gone away. What's, what's different is that we now have evidence that the positive action approaches to telling people what they mustn't say has failed to change hearts and minds. Um, as sexual orientation and gender identity never had a specific duty for a long time and the stonewall approach has relied on carrots not sticks I would argue that we have been more effective than the Race Relations Amendment Act, the Disability Discrimination and the Sex Discrimination Act who mainly told a whole generation of public sector workers what they mustn't do um, so I don't think we see a change I think we just see people are confident also as someone who's worked at Stonewall for a decade it's not like we had a heyday where there wasn't meanness like, hate crime has always been a feature of LGBT communities. Um, homophobia, biphobia and transphobia in mainstream press has always been a feature. Derogatory comments and remarks on mainstream television has always been a feature. So I, I don't recognise this shift. And I think what's different is that people who have presumed that it's all all right now have realised it's not. And I think that that's problematic. 
I think that the assumption that identity politics has become an overbearing narrative is, is also incorrect. I think that what's happened is that identity politics has been articulated and expressed in a different way, in part because of the increase in higher education, um, social media, mechanisms and access to an ability to have affinity with groups when you were previously isolated in a small room in Cardiff. You now have 300 people just like you going, that tie looks great. I mean, that's very affirming in terms of identity. I think that there is something deeply problematic about the characterization of identity politics as a privileged position that is of deep concern and the emerging narratives around snowflake generation, etc., presumes that having an identity of other is somehow a privileged position, is, is deeply flawed. The whole point of identity politics is about recognising that there is an inherent disadvantage because of who you are, and that inherent disadvantage starts from the moment you are perceived as other, whether that's because of race, because of disability, because of poverty, because of age, etc., etc. The biggest flaw, I would argue, with the Labour Party, and, well, (laughs) in in the context in which I am able to speak, um, the biggest flaw with the Labour Party is that... um, Identity politics hasn't been closely enough aligned with socialism and social inequalities. You cannot talk about poverty and tackling social inequality without talking about identity. You cannot say, I want to eradicate poverty and not acknowledge that being black has a greater impact on your likelihood to be poor, or that being a woman makes you more likely to experience inequalities that lead to social exclusion. So to have a socialist movement that is predicated on equal access to resources and to wealth and to the state without addressing identity politics is utterly fundamentally flawed. And what instead has developed on the left is a narrative about identity politics that is perceived to be one of privilege versus a white working class man that is about social inequalities. White working class men have an identity and have an identity that they are experiencing disadvantage of because of that identity, whether that's because of a loss of purpose, a loss of vocation, a loss of industry. That is in and of itself part of our emerging narrative about identity politics. And as we lurch in the left between, yeah, but we just care about white, you know, working class and poverty, but we're not going to talk about black people anymore because that's very Blair, it has fundamentally missed the point, and that is why socialism will always fail and why we're basically on the track that we're on now till 2030. So good luck, IPPR. Um, In terms of um, hearts and minds, that's what Stonewall does. So Stonewall's legal team, the law bit, was a public narrative because putting what do we want, equal marriage, when do we want it now, on the side of a postcard was infinitely easier than how do we change the policies regarding Ofsted's assessment of schools in relation to homophobic bullying now. Um, But if I look at the 120 staff that Stonewall employ, one is full-time on parliamentary activity, um, and we get pulled in on different issues. I think we need to increase that now (laughs) because of the whack-a-mole situation that we're in. But if you look at our education team, who work with 2,000 schools and public policymakers, we look at our health team, we look at our employment team, look at our crime team, these are all people working on public policy issues. The difference with the Stonewall methodology, I think, is that we work both on a national level with influencing policy, but also with those who are implementing the change. So we will work with the police force to help them understand LGBT hate crime 
as well as working with the Association of Chief Police Officers, as well as working with the Home Office. And that, again, is a result of not having the law, actually. Stonewall's had to become a much more effective strategic lobbying vehicle because we've not had those normal methods available to us. I also think that because we have worked very hard, and this ties in with your point um, that you made at the end there, we've worked very hard to empower individuals who identify as LGBT to be the change agents and not be passive victims belonging to a community that is experiencing oppression in and of itself, but the agents of change in that oppression, we have therefore seen a, a faster rate of change. So that when you empower people to be that change it, change, it happens. I think one of the biggest flaws with the feminist movement at the moment is that it, it is yet to articulate ways to empower women to be the change. And I have a huge amount of respect for what the Women and Women Equalities Party is doing, but if I was designing a political party now, I would be supporting women to run for every local council in this country because if you put a woman on every local authority as a local councillor, you will start transforming the policies, practices and procedures in that local area. It is also much more effective than putting up a mayor, a mayoral candidate. So how are you influencing these different ways is going to be hugely important. I think as a feminist movement, we've also stopped talking about gender and we really have to start talking about gender very, very quickly, and understanding the inherent um, value in empowering men as a way of empowering and enabling the empowerment of women as, as key links. I think if we continue to ostracise and minimise people's lived experience based on their identity alone, we will cease to see change. However, the counter-argument to what I've just said is that the LGBT movement has arguably been more effective because it's had white men in it. And if the LGBT movement had been dominated and solely run by women because of the fundamental nature of patriarchy, we would have been less effective. Would I have been as an effective chief exec during a decade of legal change working with mainly male legislators as I am now? Would I have had the regard and the respect I'd need to make that work? And is that just me having a little crisis of confidence about imposter syndrome? You know, that's what we do. But it's, it's those various things that we have to bear in mind. Sorry, that's a very long answer. Good day. Oh, what am I most frightened of? Um, what I'm most frightened of for young people, I think, is this, is this sense that they're supposed to be all right now. And I think that the the catalogue of trauma inflicted upon LGB people to start with over the last five decades has an intergenerational impact and leaves its mark, and that doesn't dissipate with equal marriage. I think that the assumption that it's going to be okay to be LGB is only valid if you are a certain type of LGB person. And when we work with young people, we talk a lot about good gay and bad gay, and good gay is a gay man who's not too camp, not too effeminate, just not too political, doesn't talk about gay stuff too much, just the right edge of straight acting. Um, a good lesbian is someone who's not too butch, is generally probably doesn't describe as lesbian but as a gay woman. Bisexuality doesn't get a mention at all. Asexuality doesn't get a mention at all. In terms of trans, good trans is someone who passes. And I think we put this huge pressure on young people to be at ease and accepting of themselves in their identity that actually we need leave no room for the exploration of shame of anxiety of fear of intergenerational trauma that's come through and passed down from generation to generation and the feeling of being excluded from the community that you belong to there is nothing more frightening than the potential risk of exclusion from the community in which you belong to and no 
limited positive messages can indicate that you're going to be safe in that because the fact that even the most privileged of gay person still lets go of their partner's hand when they turn a street corner in London. So there is always a risk. There is always a potential risk, and that leaves its mark. Okay, yes, question uh, at the back there. Question in the middle. Uh, oh, gosh, a whole flurry. Right, I'm just going to take my blocks of three and, and, and queue you up. Uh, so um, there and there, and then a uh, lady in the middle here, and then a person in the middle. Sorry. Thank you. And then I'm going to hold the other three for the next round, if I can. Thank you. So at the risk of sounding like a privileged white gay male living in London, uh, I'll ask my two questions anyway. Um, your, your tagline of acceptance without exception, is that uh, at the risk of um, becoming a sort of eternal, unending job, district, job description? And is there a risk that... Um, you know, uh, gay campaigning will become an industry in itself, a, a perpetuating industry. And I suppose a, rel- a related question, as Stonewall has got bigger and you, your, your budget has got bigger, do you see the challenges in ensuring that your expenditure is appropriate and that you don't fall into the, the traps that somebody like Kids Company had done where they were spending money on, you know, school fees and, you know, hire uh, cars and all the rest of it? I'm just interested in, in those two. Yep. Interesting. Um, so down here in the middle, thank you. I'm, I'm Lorenzo from Italy. I'm here as an exchange student at LC. And you mentioned the work with companies. And I want to ask you, if, um, what are the goals and the challenges for the next year workplace work, uh, equality index? And how is it difficult to reach and to involve the medium-small enterprises in that? Okay, thank you. And then person in the middle. Oh, person at the other end. Sorry, you've got a mic. Um, hi, I'm Bex. Um, I've just been elected as the LGBT officer for the SU here for the next year. Congrats. Um, thanks. Um, I'm just wondering, you talked a lot about leaving people behind. Um, and I'm thinking about the class and race elements that come into this. For example, um, you're talking here at the LSE. Recently, the LSE has completely ignored homophobia ongoing with the cleaners. Um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on this, what Stonewall is doing to help, because... I really value Stonewall. I think they're amazing. But I think sometimes the work can become concentrated in well-known institutes and ignore some of the people who are kind of lesser known in society. Okay, thank you. Um, so to answer your first it's a very, very important question and one that we're constantly asking ourselves. First of all, to reassure you, our governance processes are very robust. Um, we have an extensive board, a treasurer, experienced accountants at every level, and a finance director and a managing director who don't let me spend a penny without due consideration and due regard. So Kids Company, the big problem that went wrong with Kids Company and Beat Bullying and other charities is that uh, individuals had too much power to spend money without any checks and balances. Stonewall sounds big at 7 million and 120. We're titchy compared to most organisations and most charities. And our impact goes way beyond that size. However, the question of growth for growth's sake is one that we're constantly asking ourselves. There is enough demand to double in size tomorrow. But we have to ask the question, would that enable us to achieve our charitable objectives more quickly? Would more staff enable us to support and end homophobia, biphobia and transphobia more quickly? And we can't answer that question with a yes yet, therefore we will not grow to that pace. Where there is demand is the need for more localised support in making sure that institutions are running well. Where we, re- where we decline demand 
is how we deliver that work. So, for example, an NHS trust will say, please, Constone will come and deliver training to every single one of our 2,000 staff. Now, we could easily say yes to that. We'd put three members of staff in doing rent-a-gay every day for... Twi- Instead, we train three people, and those three people train those 2,000 staff. The return to us is tiny. The staff needed on that is tiny. However those 2,000 staff will learn more as a result of that experience. So it's a real balancing act for us about maintaining absolutely in our mind our objectives, which is to ensure that every single lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender person can be themselves, except with that exception. Is acceptance of that exception a vision or is it a work plan? It's a vision. We always talk about when will stone will stop. And what will that look like and when will that be okay? And that will be okay not when hate crime is over, but when we trust the police to deal with hate crime. And, and, it, and it's that combination and that thing. I also think that um, there is a greater responsibility, and this slightly ties into your point, is that how do we ensure that we share what we've learned about LGBT issues in terms of other protected characteristics. So often, so for example, we run a leadership program for LGBT people. We take 36 people away for two and a half days and we help them get over themselves. Um, it's the technical analysis. We're increasingly being asked to run that program for heterosexual women. Now, we've got a consultant who can do that. It has no impact on Stonewall. But what they see is what we've learned about authenticity, what we've learned about ways of working has an interest and applicability. Could Stonewall expand the model to affect other protected characteristics and keep a very lean campaigning team? Quite possibly. You know, you you could think about that. But it's something we're very mindful of. And when you have a mixed board who get very seduced by growth, it's very, very important that we don't. I don't know if that's the honest answer to your question. Um, In terms of the workplace, uh, so in the next year, so we we have an index, and the index is modelled on an index that was done in America. And in America, it's called the Corporate Equality Index, and every company gets 100%. In Britain, no company gets 100%. We make it harder every three years, and we're on the new cycle now. Every organisation we work with thinks it's terribly unfair that they don't get what they think they should get. Um, We work with five stages of organisation, and mostly organisations think they are in the top 20 when they're mostly just coming under the top 100. I have no comment to make about the LSE. They're doing really well. Um, But most organisations presume that because they are a natural meritocratic organisation, they don't need to do this work that we ask them to do. However, once they do it, it all gets better. It's magic. Um, So the things coming in next year is much more about intersectionality, actually. So the index will be asking far more questions about whether your LGBT network reflects and considers the experiences of people beyond your peripheral vision. You know, to what extent are you bringing in other communities and other other parts of society? ASDA, for example, um, they make sure that their LGBT network gets rolled out into their... um, night shift staff on the work floor, you know, how do you get messages out all the way down an organisation, all the way across an organisation. Also, trans is coming in, so there'll be dedicated questions around trans issues. SME remain a perennial problem because most small to medium enterprises only consider diversity in relation to risk 
and it's only an issue raised from an accountant's point of view. They are never going to respond to a specific intervention around LGBT. They actually need an intervention that talks about the business case for a small to medium enterprise, but also talks about all protected characteristics, which also ties into the point made at the beginning. You know, if we could get a hairdresser to care about LGBT people, can we only do that by getting them to care about people in a wheelchair as well? How do we kind of have that influence? Um, so that kind of comes back to class. So Stonewall's next big move on education, the next five-year plan, is about young people who are not in employment, education and training. How do we kind of support those young people who are falling through all those cracks? And the index next year will be about drilling deeper, about making sure that all these things cascade through to different levels. So it's something that we're aware of. Stonewall is constantly perceived to be a very middle-class organisation because its staff are very middle-class because they work in London in policy jobs and are very middle class. We have introduced um, uh, internship programmes for uh, living wage entry-level internship programmes that will only ever go to people who have not done internships in other charities, unpaid internships in other charities. So my assistant is always from a non-traditional background with no access to the charity sector and they get big exposure and read all my inbox and that means they've got more confidence to apply for other jobs. So we're trying to live up to our end of the bargain and live those values, um, but it is a constant journey. So cluster three that I promised before. If you could put you, raise your hands. Oh, somebody just snuck in on the end there. Okay, we'll get you in as a, as a sneaky force. A sneaky force. Okay, flurry of hands, just in order. So, uh, well, you've asked one before, actually, so I'm going to ask you to just be the fourth one in this candidate, and then person in black first, and then the two behind. Thank you. Yep. Oh, me. Um, you mentioned about the work, obviously, with EU law, and obviously, uh, we all know, like, I don't, although I think not a lot of people do know, like, how much of our anti-discrimination laws do come from the EU, not even just the Bill of um, like the European Convention of Human Rights, which is actually European Council. But I was just wondering, um, are you gearing up to now be lobbying for Bre like with the Brexit campaigns, because we now have it confirmed that it's going to happen, are you go is Stonewall going to also be trying to maybe, instead of trying to work on getting them to sign the laws, which you've been doing now, is it actually now looking with Brexit on trying to see making sure that they actually Replicate. keep certain laws and um, yeah because obviously we've got so many laws involved with it they're not going to have to get rid of them but yeah so I was just wondering about the implications of Brexit on your lobbying um, yeah right thank you uh, behind thanks Hi, um, I'm Adam, I'm a student here you, you touched on LGBT parenting um, and obviously numbers of LGBT families are increasing exponentially. Um, you characterise the sort of the last fight as a sort of normalisation agenda. With that hindsight in respect to LGBT families and parenting, do you see a different approach? And how big do you see your impact there? And or will you be working with other organisations that you know, have the, the wider sort of family agenda at hand? Hi, I'm Scott and I'm a student here. Um, I was just wondering what Stonewall's doing to firstly change the situation in Northern Ireland, but also just where you see that trajectory going. Yep. Okay, thank you. And then back to Strikey Top. 
Um, I was just wondering, so last year the um, Pride Alliance at the LSE changed our name to um, GSD to be more inclusive and to make sure that we were less westernised, which the LGBT um, is very westernised. I was just wondering how you kind of, um, with the westernised and the somewhat um, gatekeeping that comes with the LGBT acronym, it's like, who's who's really part of the acronym? Um, With non-binary people and pan people and ace people, and I was just wondering um, what your thoughts were on that. Cool. Good light questions to end. Um, So um, most of the EU laws that protect LGBT people have been enshrined in British law now. The Stonewall has no position on Brexit um, after very careful consultation with various legal advisors in terms of our charitable objectives. However, we have a mission and job to do to ensure that um, LGBT issues are particularly written into bilateral trade agreements. So a lot of the work at the moment is about working with the Foreign Commonwealth Office to ensure that all the kind of subsequent independent law agreements that will come out between Britain and other countries enshrine some of these issues. Um, I'm on uh, the Foreign Secretary's Advisory Group on Human Rights, and that's something we talk about bilateral trade agreements. So it's not let's talk about the rights of LGBT people in Africa, it's bilateral trade agreements. And that is, that is the impact of Brexit. And there's a general bigger picture there in that all government activity is about Brexit these days. So the kind of let's have a good discussion about the changing nature of the role of the state in controlling society is kind of, forget it, like bilateral trade agreements. Um, so I'm becoming very smart about bilateral trade agreements in a way that I didn't expect I'd have to. Stonewall did, however, negotiate some of our sponsorship in euros, which we're very pleased about. Um, in terms of parenting, there are still gaps in the law around parenting, actually. The surrogacy laws are inadequate in terms of how they apply to uh, men who want to um, use surrogates. The laws are also... Um, the policies haven't caught up in terms of transparenting as well, so there are gaps there. However, there is something to make sure that what we, mainstream family organisations include LGBT parenting as part of their discussions and narrative is incredibly important. So NSPCC, we do a lot of work with them to make sure that when they talk about parents, they're not just talking about mums and dads, because two dads who've got a teenage son are worried about him watching porn as well. You know, these are not kind of reserved for heterosexual couples' concerns. But I think that there is still a significant job to do to raise the profile of LGBT parents in particularly primary schools. And one of the big, uh, I wouldn't say fights, but discussions we had around sex and relationship education, there was a discussion about whether compulsory SRE should only apply to secondary schools. And we really pushed for it to be included in primary schools. You can't have sex in primary schools. You can't have the word sex anywhere in primary schools but you can have relationships. So we've got relationship education in primary schools and sex and relationship education in secondary schools. And that was very much about saying we've got to reflect different families in the narratives that exist in primary schools. So there's still a lot of lobbying to be done, actually, a lot of kind of solid campaigning to be done, but other organisations can do that too. Northern Ireland, um, so Stonewall operates in Scotland, Wales and England, and we have a, um, we work very closely with an organisation called the Rainbow Project in Northern Ireland, and Stonewall won't operate in Northern Ireland because there's something that exists there, respecting grassroots organisations that exist. However, we're working very, very closely with them. I think the main issue in Northern Ireland is that a lot of the legislative journey that I outlined was done in Westminster and thrust upon Northern Ireland, which means the legislation and legislators in Northern Ireland haven't practised 
how to talk about LGBT issues. So the bad stuff that was said about gay people in age of consent and gay people in the military and lesbians having access to fertility treatment all got grown out of in Westminster. So that when it came to marriage, even those who opposed marriage were very polite about it because they'd been vile in the age of consent. What's happening in Stormont is they're practicing all that now on marriage. So that's why there's constant vile language about sex abuse and children and all this stuff, because this is the one area they've had to conflate it. However, um, it's not just broken in relation to LGBT equality is also the problem. The big thing we say in, in, to our friends in Northern Ireland is, don't worry so much about marriage, let's talk about schools, and let's talk about employment, and let's talk about hate crime, and let's change attitudes, and let's get some billboards up, and let's kind of do some of that hearts and minds campaigning that needs to be done. But that's all done in utter partnership with the Rainbow Project. Um, GSD, no, because most of the international groups we work with have said no, and we work with um, organisations across the world who still use LGBT. Um, we, we use LGBT because it's the plainest English to be used, and GSD in all our testing just loses people. So I think it works in institutions like this, like LSE, but has yet to stick in any of the other places we're working. That's a very good question and highlights my point exactly. Okay. Good. Yeah. Brilliant. So I think Ruth, you've just given you've given us you've asked you've answered a very challenging set of questions. I would expect no less from an LSE audience, um, but you've asked, answered them in a very open and very thoughtful way. And thank you very much for your presentation, which again I think just is a huge testament to Stonewall. It's a huge testament to your own personal role, if I may say so, uh, in terms of taking the movement and some of the very difficult choices that you have um, as an organisation and as a movement as to really how to both maintain focus and have the widest influence that you can have and how to, how to marry those two things. I think we should show Ruth a, a fantastic um, sense of appreciation, if we may, for a really fascinating evening. Thank you.